welcome to Her Incredible Mind, where we highlight women with STEAM-related careers. Today, we are speaking with Liz O'Day, uh, and we're excited to have you with us today, Liz. Thank you so much for having me. I'm thrilled for the opportunity. Thank you. So can we chat a little bit about your role today? Can you describe what it is that you do? Sure. Um, so I'm the CEO and founder of Olaris Inc. We are a precision diagnostic company that helps develop tools that say which is the best drug for you. I think we're fortunate to live in a world where we have some amazing therapies, um, but because we are all different, a drug that might work for you might have no effect on me or in fact could harm me. And so Olaris develops diagnostics that can help sort of optimize who should get which therapy and when. That's interesting. So, so how, how do you describe the, 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 the process and kind of what you're doing today? Yeah, well, so maybe I'll, I'll take a step back even further, if you don't mind. So um, I started the company seven years ago as a spin out from my PhD at Harvard, where I developed the underlying technology. But I, you know, believe truly that the company got started a lot earlier than that. Um, because it was really rooted when um, my older brother got cancer when we were kids. Um, he is fine now, not only survived, but thrived. I feel like he's made very um, better life choices than I have. He lives on Nantucket and like, you know, surfs and hangs out where I'm connected to my computer and 3000 books all the time. But um, when he was sick, you know, we had this rare form of childhood cancer. My family lived in children's hospital for like two years and I would beg the doctors to fix my brother. Um, and they would tell me all I could do was like hope that the medicine was working and, you know, that everybody was doing the best they could. So that frustrated me, even as a kindergartner, that like hope was all that we could do. And, and you know, good Lord, I did hope and pray every day that he got better. And thankfully he did but I just knew there had to be a better way and that we could use like data to help drive, you know, treatment decisions. And so, um, you know, I basically made a deal with God. If he saved my brother's life, I would dedicate my life to try to like improve treatment outcomes and been doing my best to hold true to that. So I've spent more hours of my life than not in a lab in a library or working to accomplish this. And, you know, what we kind of, it's, it's not rocket science, right? Like what we've, realized is that some people take a drug or go on a therapy and they have a beautiful outcome. And some people take a drug or go on a therapy and they have not a great outcome. And right now, or sometimes we've been treating those as like a miracle when it works and a tragedy when it doesn't. And so what Olaris has said is like, no, let's actually learn from those previous patients. Let's go get their blood or their urine and do what's called metabolite profiling um, to isolate all the small molecules that swim around in them and quantify them using our AI and advanced analytics to see if we can find signatures that can help explain why the people had a good benefit and those that didn't, you know, did not, um, and then use that to improve the treatment of future patients. So our pipeline is, you know, actually pretty simple. We get blood, urine, and clinical data from previous patients where we know what happened to them. We isolate and detect and quantify these metabolites. We use big giant magnets that are bigger than the room that I'm in right now um, to be able to measure those things. And then we do, I would say both like basic, you know, machine learning or AI, which is, you know, the world that we live in that has become pretty basic, but really then advanced AI tools as well to find those signatures that can explain those differences and use that to develop diagnostics that can hopefully improve future patient care. 
What a fascinating thing to do, right? When you think about that, you're actually looking back on why something might not have been successful and trying to figure out how it could have been successful. Were there factors outside of what was done perhaps in the past that you know contributed to that not being successful in trying to look at it one more time with some sort of hope, really, that it may have an impact in, in the future? Yeah, like where I think like medicine right now is very reactive. We wait till we break down, right? Or something bad happens. And, you know, I think uh, that's probably not optimal. And can we start building in more preventative steps? It's, just, oh my gosh, not only like, are you on, you know, a bad choice or a bad, um, you know, prognosis, can we develop ways to sort of intervene earlier to improve those outcomes? That's great. And, you know, when I think about, uh, you know, the long-term impact of that, you know, some of the things I think that when they're doing clinical studies, I think about the fact that all that lab work that goes into it and the constant, you know, people in the labs, is that something that you enjoyed is, is being in the lab? Oh, I loved it. Yeah. I literally, I, I, I you know, I, it might sound like hyperbole, but I bet if you added it up more hours of my life than not have been in a lab and I used to be doing a lot of biophysics which usually like we were like in the basement lab so you know I used to have like a vitamin d issue just simply because I would get to the lab before the sun would rise and I wouldn't leave you know until the sun would set um so yeah I loved being in the lab I loved you know looking under the microscope I think um I've been very fortunate in my life you know to love what I do and then be sort of recognized you know for for my science so I've got you know, to see and do very cool things. I remember the first time, you know, we, we made stem cells and we differentiated them into cardiomyocytes, which are heart cells. And they actually like beat in the dish. Like there's not, not like there's nothing cooler like than seeing that happen, you know? And, but even cooler is being able to say like, okay, like I know the signaling molecules or the metabolites or the mechanisms that are driving it. Because then once you can like know that, you can think of ways to improve you know, cardiovascular disease or these issues that sort of plague our society. Right. There's so much creativity that actually goes into science. And I think that that's something, you know, when we talked about her incredible mind at first, we thought about, is it STEM or is it STEAM? Is it STEM or is it STEAM? And I know some people lean towards it's not STEAM, it's STEM because they don't think that arts actually belongs in it. And I feel sometimes that there's just so much within the science and in all areas really of STEM that really does realize a lot on the arts and humanity. It's, it's, it's fine. It's funny when you look at it like that. Yeah, I don't even know, Kate, if you know this, but so my um, first soiree into entrepreneurship was I started a fashion company. Um, called Lizzie, Lizard Fashion. My my older brother, Rob, and my younger brother, Chris, were like doting brothers and gave me the nickname Lizzie Lizard, um, which of course, you know, I loved, um, not at all, but I embraced Lizard as sort of my alter ego. And I started a an apparel company that used fashion as a medium to promote science. And, you know, we retailed in gift shops and we had an online store. I recently shut it down because it was just too much, but um, we actually, we donated all the proceeds to the American Cancer Society or American Cancer American Association for Cancer Research, the AACR, which is a great organization. Um, but I would often get like interviewed or asked, you know, what are the differences between science and fashion? And I would say they're actually very similar, like, you know, passion, creativity, dedication, willingness to sort of experiment, you know, um, kind of crosses both lines. It is, it is, uh, it's very, very interesting. And I remember in our initial conversation when you brought up the clothing line and, uh, and I loved it. I loved that, you know, that you had done something that creative, you know, and incorporated the science part of it too, which was fabulous. Good for you. 
So when you think about your career and kind of where you are today, obviously you've done, you know, a very creative path and now you're probably in, in a situation where, you know, most women, you know, or most girls in science don't picture themselves in that CEO role like you have right now. But when we think about it, what do you think about the obstacles that you've faced in your career? Um, there's been a few, <laughs> uh, quite, you know, um, yeah, so, you know, I think this might be sort of controversial, but I don't know if you, have you read the book Codebreaker? Um, it's the Walter Isaacson. It's sort of like a profile of Jennifer Doudna, but also sort of gene editing um, as well. It's a great book. I highly recommend it. Um, but I've met Jennifer before and she gave advice in the book that she had given to me previously, which I think is great for women to think about. So you know, Jennifer Doudna discovered CRISPR, Nobel laureate scientist. She got asked all the time, like, what are some of the obstacles, you know, that you faced, especially being a female? And um, she kind of flipped it on its head, which I think is, an, it was a, is a powerful thing for people to think about. She said, because I was a female and not from, you know, some necessarily prestigious scientific background, the expectations for me were quite low. Um, and so nobody thought she would make much of herself in this area. And instead of that being sort of something that held her back, she saw that as like freeing. And I've really tried when she and I were at Davos together, when she and I were talking about it, she told me that I was like, that is a great way to think about it, right? Instead of like, you know, that you gotta, I don't know, necessarily keep proving yourself or whatever, you could actually be freed that nobody's expecting much of you from this. So no matter what you do, it's gravy, right? And I've tried to sort of embrace that, you know, I don't want to make that seem like it's really easy because God, is it exhausting when, you know, people, you know, don't value your opinion more, you constantly have to prove yourself more or, you know, be in every way, you know, better X, Y, and Z and still, you know, not get the same recognition or whatever it is. Um, yeah, it is. But, you know, I think women and young girls can also just sort of say like, use that and say, you know what, whatever, I'm just going to go out and just do it no matter what anybody says. Um, yeah, I can see that point. I definitely can. And one of the things I think about it too, is that I wonder if it promotes almost a lack of not thinking about it, right? Just continuing on doing what you're doing, focus on what you have to do for you. And don't worry about all the other stuff that happens on the other side, whether it's noise or not, you know, it's, yeah. it's, a, it's an interesting perspective. But I like, I mean, those quiet voices definitely like, you know, those whispers play in people's heads. So I don't want to like, you know, even pretend like they haven't, you know, played into my psyche and it's a constant battle just to like, I'm doing something good here. You know, I'm smart, I'm capable, I'm passionate. I believe in this work and just kind of keep marching forward. Um, but it is an interesting thing. Like when I was in undergrad, um, again, I was, you know, been working in a lab for more, more than my life than not. I was won all of these undergrad research awards. And every time um, one of these events happened, people always asked me what it was like to be a female chemist. And they always attached like female, you know, to the thing. It wasn't just, how does it feel to be, you know, a young promising chemist or whatever it was. And it was, it was only when they made that distinction, did I really like look around and say like, oh, I am the only female here. I am the only girl, you know, and like, we need to change that. In fact, it's why I started, um, it's a group called Women in Science and Technology at Boston College, my alma mater, where we bring in high school girls every year. The program is now like 15 or 16 years old. Um, we've, been in, we've brought in hundreds of high school girls to let them show, see what being a scientist is really like, you know, so that we can start as an, at an early age, letting people see that being a scientist doesn't mean you're some, you know, 
well, I would say I'm awkward, but you know, not some like weird, awkward duck, you know, but like it can be fun and exciting and that sort of thing as well. Absolutely. And I think immersion programs are so, so good for kids to see. And, you know, it's fun because I, I think that some of this steam and the immersion programs need to really back up into middle school, because I think that's when it's really the, the, the foundation is starting to be built on what girls will be driven by, you know, what it honestly, uh, you know, most boys, they end up trying to do that in high school, you know, yeah. that's more what they're driven by, but girls start looking at it more in that, you know, six to nine or something like that grade um, kind of area, which is interesting because you, um, you could definitely give them some, some kind of range or, or some sort of exposure to what is out there that they can do, you know, and obviously they can do anything. So it's, it's there is no ceiling. So it is. Yeah, but I think that's why things like this are so great, right? Because I think Absolutely. if you can see it, you can be it and like, you know, yep. yeah. No, it's fantastic. Kudos to you for that. That's great. So uh, when you think about where you are now, what would advice would you have for your younger self? Hmm. I mean, just to keep at it, right? So, um, so there's um, I like love quotes and things like that. And there's two quotes that maybe I'll use to answer this. But you know, um, there's a Mary Oliver quote that's like, "Tell me what you're going to do with your one wild and precious life," right? And I think we all get one life to live, and you know, doing something that challenges you and gives you purpose, I think is really, really important. And, you know, I, I, I am so glad that I made the decisions I've made and to pursue Olaris and to try it, but it wasn't always like the clear path, right? You know, and there was a lot of doubts and like, you know, people were very like, what are you doing? You know, you're starting a biotech company. You don't even know what that is. You have no connections to that field. You have no source of capital. Um, how are you going to make any of that work? And I don't know if it was naivety, arrogance, or some combination thereof, but I'm glad that like, I didn't let those voices sort of dissuade me. Cause I just felt like if I could figure out a way to make it work, you know, we could do something amazing. And, and I think the other quote, and I'll, I always botch this one. So I'll just give you the gist of it is like, courage isn't always being sort of like the loudest person in the room it's about like getting up every day and saying like I'll try again and I think like that's been kind of a mantra of Olaris you know we've been at this for a long time and trying to really make the case that what we could do you know can transform medicine can improve health you know and um you know, I think a lot of people were dismissive of maybe in the early days. And it was just like, instead of myself getting discharged or turned away, it was like, let's just go get more evidence. Let's keep building and let's keep building. Um, and now, you know, we, we're, we're on our way. We just signed a huge deal to bring, you know, our first product to market. Um, I have others in the pipeline and, you know, it's going to be crazy. Like in the future, when patients, physicians order our tests, patients take them and they use it, you know, so that they have confidence they have the right diagnosis, they're on the right treatment path, and they can, you know, um, you know, continue towards towards a, a good outcome. That's awesome. That is so awesome. So what advice would you have um, to younger girls? You can be anything, like literally, you can be anything and you can have so much fun doing it, right? Like I, I wear pink shoes every day. Let me see if I can get my foot up here, you know, and so you don't have to like fit into any stereotype, you know, whatever you love and whatever you want to be, go at it with full force and do it 
your way. You know, I think I've sort of, as everybody has like struggled to try to see like, oh my God, am I professional enough? Am I whatever fitting into some mold? And that will be, that's just, that's exhausting, right? So whatever you want to be, you can be it and you can do it, you know, with your own voice and your own authenticity. Awesome. Awesome. So if your LinkedIn profile was limited to three words, what would you write? Um, am I allowed to swear on this or not? So I was gonna, yeah, I'm not sure. And all, all that's in my head is badass motherfucker. But like, no, I don't know. If that, like, we might want to cut, cut that out. Um, um, let's see. I would say, um, does the work might be my three words. That's awesome. That is awesome. Thank you, Liz, for being with us today. We really appreciate it.